Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, aka Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer, and today we're talking about the 60s and 70s again, looking at ideas of pride, power, and personhood uh, coming out of sort of multiple freedom movements. Uh, changes in popular culture, the rise of the religious right, and sort of this new right. Uh, some people call this sort of identity politics, the rise of identity politics, uh, but sort of more individual movements based on both perceived uh, identities and identity groups. Uh, so I sort of mentioned the the thing we're looking at, uh, some of the stuff we're looking at today, right? These sort of multiple freedom movements coming out of that big one we talked about in the Civil Rights Podcast uh, but ideas of sort of black nationalism, uh, Chicano movements, movements like that, and then as well as sort of changes in popular culture coming into the 70s, along with the rise. This is something we've been teasing, I've been teasing about for a couple of weeks, the rise of the religious right and sort of the new right, uh, all sort of coming in reaction to these freedom movements uh, and sort of being identities in and of themselves. So some major questions for today's podcast. One, what are identity politics, right? So why? Why is that? That word gets thrown around a lot today, especially, right? You know, someone can be accused of playing identity politics, that sort of stuff. Um, So where did this come from, right? What does it mean in this specific context? And then how did the freedom movement change in the 1970s, right? If you remember, my main argument is that sort of the freedom movement, the civil rights movement didn't end in 65, but continued on. Right, but it sort of looked different than it did in '65 in the in the later '60s and in the '70s, and then finally, what were some of the characteristics of the new right? Sort of introducing this new group, right? Sort of talk about uh, and explain what they look like. What were some of the people in those groups uh, coming sort of post Nixon, post Watergate, and sort of rising up at the at the same time? Uh, so today's sort of little biography here is a group instead of a person. Uh, is a group instead of a person coming out of Chicago. We'll be looking at the Jane Collective. Uh, the Jane Collective, founded by people like Heather Booth, though she's not the only founder, uh, worked from 1969 to about 1973 uh, and helped provide thousands of illegal abortions to, to women in Chicago, to clients in Chicago. Started by a number of different people, many of them students at University of Chicago, known as the quote-unquote the Jane. At the time, right, sort of the abortion was illegal in a lot of places in the United States, but people were still getting them, right? At the the time, um, especially in Chicago, a lot of uh, abortions, uh, sort of illegal, right, in Illinois, um, were controlled by the mob, right? Uh, And so the Jane sort of developed out of a need uh, to help women find safer ways uh, to get these abortions without having to go through the mob. Just sort of, this is a quote, right? Sort of self, many people self-administered internal injuries while using sharp objects or carbolic acid, mom-sponsored back, mob-sponsored back alley operations, sort of these very unsanitary, very unsafe ones, or quote-unquote doctors, right, who would demand sexual favors for women in return for Abortions are sort of a leave them alone after the operations in motel rooms, potentially bleeding to death. On record, a, a then medical student at Cook County Hospital says sort of what was seared into her brain was that no was that was what desperate people will do when they think they have no other choice, right? So for these women, right, the Jane Collective was really helpful. Uh, the Janes included medical students, uh, regular college students, and then eventually people from all across Chicago. 
uh, that connected with local civil rights groups to sort of get this going. Uh, and it's estimated that they provided over 11,000 abortions during uh, the organization's span, right? So from 69 to 73, that sort of four-year period, able to provide 11,000 abortions. Um, their work ended in 1973 with the passage of Roe v. Wade, but sort of this big organization showing the power of collective action, right, to sort of help people get these abortions uh, that they need in ways that didn't, you know, endanger their lives or make them go through these horrible processes. It's sort of one thing to note, right, uh, the Jan Collective is was nominally a, a secret organization, and there were and many of them were arrested for their work, right? You can find their mugshots arrested by the Chicago PD. They didn't always exactly work in secret, though, Um they would sort of post flyers, right, so people would know about them. So there's sort of these whisper networks, but then also they were doing some I mean, advertising, right, is, is a word for that, but not exactly the most secret organization. So getting sort of some help, at least, or a lack of oversight, um, lack of oversight from local local politicians, though not always, as, as evidenced by, by their arrests. Ah, so, okay, so identity politics, um, moving on here a little bit. So the 1970s sort of see a time where you get sort of demands for increased freedom battling against conservative demands for quote-unquote law and order. Uh, I remember we talked about with Nixon, right, law and order is often the sort of racist dog whistle idea that's basically just saying um, to crack down on, on freedoms for non-white people. Uh, and sort of this this battle can be seen in the proliferation of identity-based social movements. Uh, pretty much all of them, including the conservative ones, were influenced by the freedom movement of the 50s and 60s, but were sort of more focused on specific freedoms for individual groups. Uh, and as I mentioned, they came from both the left and the right sides of the political spectrum. So instead of, you know, the, the freedom movement of the 50s and 60s, which whose messaging was largely about, you know, freedom for all, right, this idea of... Uh, you know, where, where black people and white people can, can work together, right? Sort of individual, these more specific freedoms for individual groups were more focused on sort of identity groups, very specific identity groups. Black activists in the 70s were sort of some of the first to make that turn to identity politics. Uh, and to be clear, this is sort of just, this is a broad generalization, right? There have been groups prior to the 50s and 60s uh, very much concerned about identity, right? If you look at Marcus Garvey, uh, we talked about earlier, uh, sort of this black nationalism coming out uh, with Garveyism had existed prior to that and other groups as well. But sort of the 70s is where you really see the uh, massive proliferation of these ideas, a much more popular sort of catching on of them. Uh, and these sort of uh, something to keep in mind is that for a lot of these groups, uh, this identity was both a cultural and sort of a political stance. Right. And I mean, for a lot of people. This was a very important movement, right? Because even with those sort of legal victories of the 60s that we talked about, you know, the Civil Rights Act, 24th Amendment, racism was still sort of rampant across the United States, right? It hadn't gone away even, at, you know, after the March on Washington. Uh, racism didn't just disappear overnight, right? It still really existed. And for a lot of people, uh, it's still a huge, huge problem. Cultural institutions especially remain sort of vastly very white. You know, we saw Nixon, right, giving funding for humanities and arts, but all that money really going towards white institutions. Uh, and this was the case even despite the successes of black artists, actors, musicians, and others in the 50s, 60s, uh, and 70s. And so many activists began to seek change not just in politics, but also in culture. 
wanted to, you know, show people that America was not just white, right? There's lots of different people living in the United States who were Americans. You see that sort of cultural acceptance and political acceptance were two different things. Sort of one of the big things come out of this is this sort of black is beautiful movement, right? Uh, you get uh, photographers like Kwame Braithwaite, who was a photographer who captured much of that black is beautiful movement. Um, you see natural hairstyles like afros becoming popular in the 70s. Africa becomes sort of a more popular travel destination for many people in the black community. Uh, historically, black colleges saw their uh, enrollment rates rise, uh, sort of seeing attending an HBCU seen as sort of a, a statement of like political activism and cultural activism. Uh, Alex Haley's Roots, right, is sort of a, a piece of popular culture that sort of capped, captured a lot of this moment. You also see a lot of the growth of black studies programs uh, and black academics as well uh, flourishing and sort of starting out in the 60s and 70s. You see a lot of student activism uh, st- around starting these black studies programs and later, you know, sort of Chicano studies programs, women's studies programs coming out of the same movement. Uh, But sort of this cultural acceptance did not lead, or this cultural growth, uh, cultural popularity, cultural popularity did not lead to social and economic parity, right? There wasn't that one-for-one switchover. You do see some federal and state programs continuing to try to fight uh, the sort of ongoing racism, ongoing segregation in the United States. Education is sort of one of those main areas that was like the main target for reform. You see sort of like despite school segregation being illegal since Brown versus Board, many schools were still sort of de facto segregated. If you look up like a population map of Washington, D.C. in 1970, you'll see that it's very, very segregated, right? There's these very uh, concentrated areas of with a black population and very concentrated areas with blue population. Uh, sorry, with white <laughs> The map I'm looking at has uh, uh, blue dots for for white people and green dots for black people. Um, has a very concentrated white populations, right? Uh, which leads to segregated schools uh, because you know if you schools are all sort of local, right? Um, you're not you go to the school that's very close to your community. You're only going to end up with white kids. And in the South, right? We said we talked about how white families turn to uh, expensive private schools uh, to sort of not send their kids to, to, to public schools where they would have to, you know, integrate, uh, with black students, uh, that didn't happen just in the South, right? Across the country, uh, you see urban neighborhoods sort of still being very deeply segregated, uh, with urban areas being very, uh, black and then white, uh, sub- and suburbs being very first sort of white, right? Uh, so you still get this sort of de facto segregation that might not be technically illegal, but still didn't actually, you know, seg- desegregate anything in the United States. One solution that a lot of places came up with to this problem was busing. Cities like Boston and Los Angeles began sending students from one district to another in order to desegregate the schools, right? So if you have Uh, Like in D.C., like I talked about, these sort of very black neighborhoods, very white neighborhoods, they would send some kids from the black neighborhoods to schools in the white neighborhoods, and then some kids from the white neighborhoods to schools in the black neighborhoods. Uh, On its face, right, sort of a decent idea, perhaps, but it did not really work at all in effect. Both black parents and white parents hated this, uh, sometimes for racist reasons, right, because they didn't want, you know, their kids 
uh, with students of a different color, but also you're just sending your children far away from home with practically no parental oversight, right? It's not like the parent can easily get to that school as well if something happens. It makes it harder to do parent-teacher conferences, and it just brings students away from their friends that had been growing up, right? Making school a new place, having to meet new friends, right? It's sort of a, a big a big problem for not just for parents, but also for students as well. And Boston, for example, saw 40 riots due to busing policies. A lot of these riots were sort of based in racist ideas, but there were some legitimate problems with this busing. By the end, and in fact, busing sort of in a lot of ways harmed uh, desegregation efforts. Uh, you see by the end of Boston's busing policy, the white population in public schools had shrunk to only 15%, right? So lower than it had been prior to the beginning of busing. Uh, You also see some more successful desegregation programs, anti-racist programs in the United States. One of them is Affirmative Action, which actually began under Nixon, interestingly enough. Um, These programs would either require employers to hire a certain number of minority workers or would only give government contracts to to certain number of minority owned or would give contracts to a certain number of minority owned businesses right so the idea that if you're getting work from the government, you either have to have a certain number of minority workers working for you, or um, the government would just give contracts to a certain amount of minority-owned businesses. Uh, in part, Nixon created, uh, implemented this in large part uh, to create political rifts between white and black union members. Unions had sort of voted against uh, Nixon uh, for a lot of his campaign, but he thought he could get white union workers on his side, and that's sort of why he implemented affirmative action. Uh, And it sort of worked, right? It created cleavages in the political bloc created by Roosevelt in the 1930s, right? This sort of union bloc that had voted Democrat for a very long time. Nixon, by sort of pushing this affirmative action, which did help a lot of people, also created this sort of political cleavage, right? White workers were saying, well, you're, you're making us lose jobs just because we're white sort of stuff. Uh, And so many white working class people began to vote Republican regularly after these affirmative action uh, policies were put into place. So not really coming from a good place by Nixon. You also see some uh, universities began instituting affirmative action policies in hiring and admissions. 1978, the Supreme Court upheld some parts of these programs, but disallowed use of exact quotas. Uh, that case is Regents of the University of California versus Backey, Alan Paul Backey. The sort of this ruling is pretty interesting. Uh, the med- it was the medical school at University of California, Davis, uh, as part of the university's affirmative action program, had reserved 16% of its admission places for minority applicants, right? So just 16%, not a huge number at all, right? In fact, a very small number compared, if you look at sort of the populations, right, and percentages that way. The Supreme Court, and sort of this is a very uh, highly fractured ruling there, about six separate opinions in the Backey case, uh, agreed that sort of these strict, you know, at 16% being strict, racial quotas were unconstitutional, and they ordered Backey to to be admitted to the school, right? Backey had argued that he would have gotten in if it wasn't for that 16%. But the Supreme Court also contended that race could be used as one criterion in sort of admissions decisions, in admissions decisions, right? So you could include race in a decision. It couldn't just be the only thing. Uh, so this sort of ruling legalized use of affirmative action, but the um, subsequent decisions would sort of continue to limit the scope of these programs. And recently, uh, the court basically did away with it all together, right? Saying affirmative action is completely unconstitutional. They're, you know, they're, they put a little bit of a carve out in there, but basically affirmative action is dead. 
And I, I should be clear, right? Uh, affirmative action, uh, the idea of it is to provide opportunities for historically uh, and currently, right, um, people who have been, you know, but political uh, minorities, uh, people who have been sort of hurt by the system of the United States, right? I think it's a very good idea and a very useful idea. It's just been sort of warped. I think, in the public mind and sort of used for political gains in, in places that it shouldn't have been, right? So people have been historically downtrodden, um, you know, historically disenfranchised, uh, giving a, an extra shot, um, I think is not a bad thing at all. It's just sort of affirmative action has become this, this word sort of that has this really negative connotation uh, because it's been used for political gain, especially by conservatives. Many sort of, at the time, right, a lot of, a lot of the... Um, Reactions to affirmative action were very racist, right? Many white people wanted to do away with it completely, claiming that sort of the earlier rights, civil rights, the earlier civil rights acts had been enough, right? Um, that there there has been enough change in the United States about race uh, that times were to set it aside, even though clearly racism was still a huge problem. So it's not just black activism uh, that's changing at this time. You also see the rise of Chicano, Chicano activism. Many of these people, uh, not just the rise, right, but sort of increased. Uh, popularity of, uh, often inspired by the successes of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, working with uh, laborers um, in California and the the Southwest, Uh, many people in the Chicano movement began to demand more radical change, right? Not just for labor rights, but for more cultural, uh, understanding more political rights, sort of the same as these black activists. A lot of people began to organize under the banner of La Raza. You see also the Raza Unida Party, groups like the Mexican-American Youth Organization uh, organizing at the local level as well. La Raza was more sort of a national level. Uh, They oftentimes focused on electoral politics in the West and the Southwest, uh, and many people began to reject Mexican-American in favor of these uh, this idea of Chicano, right? this sort of more inclusive, uh, more identity-focused uh, idea. You also see the burgeoning of what's called red power, uh, right? Sort of many American Indians uh, began organizing under the idea of red power, you know, taking from black power uh, during the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Native peoples, right, had been living, many people have been living in poverty, sort of had a huge lack of political power during this time. Many people were still living on these reservations, which are hugely, were massively, massively poor, lots of problems with alcoholism, drug abuse, and then just sort of a lack of of places and things uh, to do for people, places to go, right? Uh, The U.S. had made it really hard for a lot of people to actually get off the reservation, or even if they didn't want to get off the reservation, to make reservations good places to live. Uh, 1969, Indians of all tribes, quote-unquote, that's the name, uh, occupied Alcatraz, demanding the return of native lands, right, arguing that the people in the United States were living on stolen land. This occupation of Alcatraz lasted 19 months. It was hugely, hugely influential to other native peoples living in the United States, and many you see many similar occupations beginning across the country and spreading across the country. Uh, the American Indian Movement, AIM, started in 1968, occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs, they occupied Mount Rushmore, and they occupied Wounded Knee, right? Sort of these massive, big protests all across the country. Uh, these protests uh, led to a number of laws uh, regarding reservations, sort of changing uh, what could be done on there, as well as over $100 million in federal spending for educational and health programs on reservations. Uh, This Red Power slogan also led to an increase in the number of people identifying as Indian, Native American, between 1970 and 1990. Uh, AIM continues to exist, uh, remains an active 
activist organization in the United States. You see Chicago as well had a number of protests for American Indian rights in the 70s as well. Chicago is a huge Native American population. And so it was very, very big um, for, for a movement, right? You see some massive, massive protests going on. Uh, there's one uh, on sort of where Wounded Knee was on that reservation. There was a big takeover of the reservation. The, the leader of the reservation had basically been this sort of mob-type leader. Uh, he was Native himself, sort of working with the government to sort of keep all the the money and and, and supplies that the, the, the reservation was given. Um, and sort of that land was taken over. Uh, you see the FBI coming in and sort of, uh, you know, shooting a lot of these activists but sort of still a very powerful, very powerful movement. I'll see a, another sort of wave of the women's movement coming around. I uh, see women continuing sort of the fight for their equal political and economic rights. Women continued even in the, uh, you know, through the seventies, continue to pay less than men. That still is true today. Uh, for doing the same work, uh, or time and again sort of passed over for promotions. You see sexual harassment sort of very common in the workplace. Uh, women's health and reproductive rights also became the center of the movement for many people. Uh, you know, just even basic facts like the fact that not until 1974 uh, could a woman open up a credit card in her own name, right? Sort of this massive, massive gender disparity, sexism in the United States. One of the biggest ways this women's movement came out was through the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, This is one of the biggest political fights of the 1970s, trying to pass this ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment is very, very short. I'll just read it here. It's three sections. Section one says, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2 says the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. And Section 3, this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. So very simple, right? Very easy. I would hope that everybody listening to this should think this should be passed. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, I sort of mentioned this, you remember all the way back to the podcast in the 1920s, uh, was first um, introduced, sorry, in the 1940s, was first introduced by Alice Paul in 1943 uh, and passed Congress March 22nd, 1942. It was approved by 30 uh, of the 38 states necessary, um, right? So it was very, very close. You need 38 states to approve uh, an amendment to make it uh to make it part of the Constitution. There was no sort of time limit on this, right? That's why you, it could pass Congress in 1942, but it wouldn't be till the 70s. Um, but after it, it was uh, went through those 70s states, so after those 30 states approved it, uh, there was a massive right-wing campaign started uh, and was able to stop it from passing. We'll talk more about, about that campaign uh, at the end here of, of this podcast with the rise of the new right. Um, but... So it failed, right? Either those last uh, eight states did not ratify this Equal Right Amendment, and the Equal Right Amendment still has not passed. In 1972, Congress did pass Title IX of the Higher Education Act, which forced universities to equally fund women's sports and also created a number of anti-sexual harassment and anti-discrimination policies, uh, but that's nowhere near what the Equal Rights Amendment would have done. You also see Roe v. Wade being passed in 1970. Women had sort of been fighting for bodily autonomy, especially about abortions, for a very long time. In 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut allowed the purchase and use of contraceptives without government restriction, right? Prior to that, there have been massive restrictions around contraceptives, but it wouldn't be until 1972 that unmarried women 
in the U.S. could buy contraceptives. And then in 1973, uh, the Roe v. Wade case struck down anti-abortion laws in 46 states. This was based on sort of the right to privacy. Uh, Of course, that was recently, Roe v. Wade was recently overturned by the Supreme Court in Dobbs v. Jackson, saying that it's a state's rights thing. The U.S. does not have the ability, uh, the federal government doesn't have the ability to sort of do that, um, sort of put in place by a very conservative court. Almost specifically, there's lots of evidence about this with conservative leaders sort of planning this since the 70s, right? Planning this overturn of Roe v. Wade. Uh, it's actually sort of seemed to have hurt the Republicans in a lot of places, right? Uh, pro-abortion amendments have passed in a lot of states that people might not necessarily have thought they would pass in. But the ending of Roe v. Wade does make it harder for women to get abortions across the United States, uh, and which is horrible in and of itself. Along with questions of personal autonomy, you also see women fighting for more social and economic equality. More and more women were entering the workforce, the workplace in the 1970s, and as a result, demanding equal economic and social protections. Several laws in the 70s allowed for women to access the same amount of credit as men, as I mentioned, right? It wasn't until 1974. Uh, They could start credit cards without having their husband having to sign off on it. Uh, But this sort of glass ceiling and the wage gap became sort of standard terms during this sign. You see several equal pay laws being passed in the 70s, but that sort of wage gap remains, right? The enforcement of them is not great, uh, very toothless laws. Some workplaces, uh, after largely after union agitation, would open up daycare centers and job training for working mothers, but that was few and far between. You also see in the 70s uh, the quote-unquote sexual revolution uh, occurring with many women sort of embracing their own sexuality, uh, sort of beginning to express their own sexual needs and sort of desires, uh, as well as experimenting with different types of relationships, right? Not just sort of this monogamy uh, that had been the, the, you know, the, the core cultural element of the United States for a long time. Uh, sort of the wide availability of the pill, right, the morning after pill, allowed more women to have sex without fear of becoming pregnant. You'll see divorce becoming more common across the United States, uh, with more women feeling the freedom to leave abusive relationships that they might have felt trapped in prior to that. You also see the sex columnists like Dr. Ruth Westheimer, Westhelmer, uh, began publishing sex advice columns in national publications, right? A, a huge change. Uh, the LGBT liberation movement also uh, began to increase their demands for equality. All right, remember we talked about um, sort of earlier earlier movements, with especially in reaction to the Lavender Scare. We see increased presence for LGBT movement, uh, especially in the late 60s and 70s, uh, advocating for and sometimes winning legal equality. Uh, one of the sort of the first major events that people talk about uh, was the Stonewall Inn um, at Stonewall Inn. Uh, sort of after a police raid in 1969 on a New York City gay bar, the Stonewall Inn. It was one of the most popular uh, gay bars in New York City. Uh, at New York City, in the t- at New York State at the time, homosexuality was considered a criminal offense, and so you know cops would often come in, despite being like paid by the owners of the, of the Stonewall Inn, uh, which was owned by the mafia. Um, they would sort of raid them, right, uh, and sort of beat up the beat up the clientele. 
uh, sort of caring very little for what happened to them. The Stonewall was raided on average once a month, once a month leading up to to that raid on June 28th, 1969, and had only been raided already before June 28th. But on so on June 28th, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn, uh, and the community this time fought back, led by sort of sparking the six day fight against the police, right, fighting for their own rights, just to be able to live uh, their lives like you know everyone else. Uh, these fights were led by activists like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Riviera, Puerto Rican and a Venezuelan uh, trans woman. Uh, and sort of this sort of sparked in a lot of ways um, a, a wider sort of understanding uh, or, you know, at least awareness of the LGBT movement and then more activists as well. Uh, Harvey Milk in 1977 became the first openly gay man to win a major political campaign. Uh, he was assassinated after winning that, uh, and, and as a result, becoming sort of a martyr to the movement. 1974, you see LGBT uh, members of the Teamsters uh, leading a boycott of Coors after Coors uh, began asking new employees if they were gay while the employees were attached to a lie detector test. Um, this boycott, which began in San Francisco, forced cores and eventually sort of spread in other places, forced cores to stop asking people about sexual preferences um, during the interview process, uh, and as well as to stop using the lie detector during interviews, right? So you see uh, unions getting involved in this as well. You all see the rise of environmental groups, environmentalism uh, in the 1970s, with people protesting for increased environmental protections. Earth Day was created in 1970. You see some um, agitations for the increased funding, increased uh, sort of ability to to target groups uh, for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, but they saw very little success and sort of environmental damage right, continued uh, unabated in much of the world. The 1970s weren't just about politics, right? You'll see some growth in the culture, 1970s culture, right? So you think about that 70s show, uh, but seen as much, much flashier than the 60s with bell bottoms and bright flowers, disco being sort of the new popular form of music. Uh, but disco wasn't just about, you know, disco balls and bright lights. Uh, it often had very sort of very conflicting messages with lots of people singing uh, uh, disco songs about political activism, right? You see a lot of black activists using disco to, to put forward their message. Um, you also see films like The Godfather and Bonnie and Clyde sort of challenging traditional moral norms. In reaction to this, right, you see the rise of the new right, um, sort of a reaction to these calls for change. Uh, sort of building up uh, their own identity group based around this sort of conservative, white, conservative identity. Uh, they, they aim to take the more sort of elite intellectual conservatism of people like William F. Buckley and sort of try to make it a more grassroots movement, but for more, bring it to sort of more non-academic people. Uh, sort of broadly defined, right? Uh, the New Right had two groups, economic conservatives and social conservatives. Both sort of fought against the expansion of political rights for people, as well as the expansion of economic rights for people that came about in the 60s and 70s. So we'll look at both those groups in turn. The first, we'll look at economic conservatives. They opposed what they saw as excessive tax policies, right? Of course, these tax policies were help funding uh, these these programs for the Great Society, as well as, you know, sort of funding, uh, you know, all these new laws that were helping people get equal wages, right? 
Uh, they especially found a significant purchase in California, where you, they had seen property taxes rise to dramatic levels. California homeowners, as part of this economic conservatism, passed something uh, called Proposition 13, which limited increases on property taxes. And the Republican Party took advantage of this, positioning itself sort of as, as anti-tax leaders. Reagan would come out of this movement, which we'll talk about next week's podcast. Uh, many states would copy California, uh, but most of them could not afford that reduction in tax revenue, right? So in return, they would cut services elf- elsewhere, often in schools, non-white schools, and road maintenance, right? So the sort of economic conservative positions themselves as just this sort of economic thing, right? We're just doing what's right economically, but it clearly has effects, right, that affect far more non-white people than they do white people. This other side of this new right was a sort of religious right, the religious conservatism, social conservatism, uh, sort of coming out of evangelical Christianity, uh, which sort of became a very potent force in American politics in the 70s. Uh, they were focused on upholding, you know, quote unquote, traditional family values, which should be, you know, you should be hearing dog whistles in your head right now. Basically, this meant a return to women working in the household, anti-LGBTQ actions, opposing Roe v. Wade, anti-feminism, all this sort of stuff, um, continued discrimination of non-white groups, right? Uh, specifically, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade became a long-term project for many on the religious right, sort of reaching its you know conclusion when they did overturn it recently. Uh, something coming out of this religious right is the moral majority uh, which was founded, a group founded by a conservative Christian leader, uh, Jerry Falwell, Reverend Jerry Falwell. Uh, his family, of course, still very popular in certain Christian groups. Uh, they were a political lobbying group, the moral majority, that became sort of a very powerful conservative voice. Um, evangelicals began creating and promoting popular music and sort of Christian fiction that promoted their agendas, right? You sort of see the development of Christian rock acts, during this time, people like Jim Baker, Pat Robertson used television to spread their message, right? We, they, you saw how successful the civil rights movement was using TV. Christian groups began using this as well. You also see Phyllis Schlafly, um, just one of the worst people of all time, uh, become one of the leading quote-unquote family values create crusaders of the 70s and 80s. She led the fight to stop the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, sort of when she saw that all these states were passing it, she started working, um, you know, going around the country, working with conservative leaders, working with this conservative Christian movement to get to stop it from being passed. Uh, and only 35 of the 38 st- states uh, ratified it, uh, largely due to Schlafly's work. Uh, you know, she would say things that all women in now, which was the organizing group behind ERA, were lesbians. Uh, sort of just awful, an awful, awful person, but had the ear of people like Pat Robertson, of Reagan. Uh, she also opposed abortion rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, right? Just one of the worst people. Uh, so some conclusions here. Um, many groups in the 70s sort of were fighting not only for legal rights, but also cultural representation and understanding, right, of themselves. They did see some successes, but uh, saw just as sort of many failures at this time. Uh, and in response to these sort of new cultural attitudes and norms, you see the arise of a new right, uh, sort of opposing New Deal era tax policies and calling for, you know, the sort of racist return to traditional family values. And in next week's podcast, I uh, will talk about how that led to the rise of Reagan. 
All right, that's it for today and have a great rest of your day.